beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Job is, is fascinating and therefore well-known. And it stands out among all the books of the Old Testament. Where else do you find a book like Job that discusses such a topic as suffering, and, and particularly the, the suffering of the righteous, in more depth than the book of Job? And where else do you find such a long dialogue between friends, where it goes back and forth, where the friends seem to go round and round in circles, accusing Job of his sin? And which other book ends almost more dramatically, where God comes in a storm and, and asks all these questions to Job, and where God shows his sovereign power and his majesty over all of creation? Even as we read this book of Job, we, especially when we read the first couple chapters, we're probably struck by the fact that there's so many questions and that we can't even answer them all. Why is this happening? Why does Job suffer? And what is, what is Job supposed to do in his suffering? How are we, perhaps, to deal with suffering in our lives? And could we react as Job does, especially as Job does in this first chapter. And many other questions like this can come up as we read this book of Job. This morning we'll focus on one particular question, and that is the question that's raised in the first chapter. Why does Job fear or worship the Lord? Now this question is raised by Satan as a challenge to the Lord. And the underlying sentiment is that, well, God himself is not enough. That people worship, people like Job, like us, perhaps worship God because of his blessings and not for who he is. And it's easy to understand why Satan would raise such a challenge. I mean, most of us in our everyday lives will make decisions based on their advantage or disadvantage for us. If I do this, will I gain from it? If I don't do my homework, will it really harm my grade? If I work overtime, will I actually have a larger paycheck? Or will it go towards taxes? Perhaps even if I live a righteous life, will I be better off tomorrow, today? Will I perhaps be righteous and not work on Sunday and instead go to church? Will I still make enough money? If I don't study, on Sunday? Will I still pass that exam on Monday? And perhaps the important reverse of that question is, will you worship God even if there doesn't seem to be any blessing in this life at all? Now as we look at our text this morning, the first couple of verses in Job, we will come across these questions and see what the Lord teaches us through the suffering of His servant and especially through Job's suffering and his reaction. And so our text this morning is summarized as following. Through the testing of his servant Job, God reveals that he is feared for who he is and not for his blessings. And first of all, we see Job's reason for fearing God questioned. And then second, Job's reason for fearing God is not taken away. So first, Job's reason for fearing God questioned. Now, the book of Job raises a number of questions about human suffering and about 
God's justice, but also raises a number of other questions that we perhaps can't really answer fully. An example would be this basic question is, who is Job? And where does he come from? He's not an Israelite. And perhaps we would like to know more than the first couple of verses tell us, but all that we get there is that Job is a man who lives in us, who was apparently part of the East because he's one of the greatest men of the East. And so if we have to perhaps guess, and if people have looked at the language of Job, they figure that he might have lived in Edom, which is just east of Israel. And if we have to try and guess when Job would have lived, we can look at the first couple of verses and see that his wealth is described in his herds and in his servants. And we look further in the book and we see that Job lived a fairly long life. And we can imagine that he was somewhat like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, that he lived among the time of the patriarchs. So when we think of Abraham, we also think of a, large, a long life of large herds, of many servants, and that that was where his wealth was. But more importantly, we see that Job worshipped God, that he sacrificed for his children, and that he feared God. And the author only gives us limited information about Job himself. He wants to go on and talk about what happens in heaven instead. And so at the beginning of our, of our text in verse 6, we see that there's a gathering in heaven, that all the sons of God, or the angels, come before the Lord. And with them comes Satan, or as a footnote, also in your Bible might suggest, as an alternative translation, the accuser or the adversary, because Satan means accuser. And perhaps you wonder, why, why does Satan appear before the throne of God? Isn't he God's enemy? Is that perhaps not the last place he should be. Is this really Satan, the devil himself? And yet, from other parts of Scripture, it's very clear that, yes, there was a time when Satan came before the Lord. And primarily from Revelation 12, verse 10, we learn that there was indeed a time when Satan did his accusing in God's court. There it talks about Christ's uh, victory in Revelation 12, verse 10, and there it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. And so Satan, the accuser, used to come before the Lord and accuse the saints, but ever since the victory of Christ, he's no longer welcome there, and he has been hurled out, kicked out of heaven. And yet at the time of Job, he apparently did still come before the Lord to accuse the saints. And as all the angels gather before the Lord, the Lord asks Satan where he has been, because he wants to know if, whether or not Satan has seen, perhaps seen Job. And Satan has been keeping an eye on what's going on earth. He mentions that he has been going to and fro on the earth. Ah. So Satan must have, must have noticed Job. You can't miss him, God says. He stands out among all the people of the earth because he's upright and because he fears God. There's none like him. What a compliment this is. The Lord loves Job and he commends Job to Satan. The Lord delights in Job because Job is a servant, one who serves God, who, who lives for the Lord 
who walks in the way of the Lord and turns from evil. And Job is described as an Old Testament saint. He lives a holy life, the life of a believer who fears the Lord, one who is upright and blameless. And it's no surprise that he fears God, answers Satan. Look at all that you've done for him. Who wouldn't fear God if they were to be just as rich and just as prosperous as Job? And Satan just straight out says, in verse 9, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Is Job's worship really a surprise? Satan doesn't think so. In fact, he challenges God. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. According to Satan, Job will only serve God as long as he receives God's blessings. Take those blessings away, and then also gone is Job's praise. It is as if Satan is telling the Lord, Lord, don't rejoice in the praise and the worship of your saints when all you do is just bribe them. You buy their love with the gifts that you give them. Look at them. They're really only in it for their own good. And so Satan attacks the way God deals with his people. And he challenges the fact, or challenges God, He wonders, how does God know that someone is really upright and really fears the Lord if he is never challenged on that point? And by challenging the Lord, Satan raises an important question. Is God worshipped for who he is or for the blessings he gives to his saints? And one way to find out is to see how how Job reacts when all these blessings are taken away from him. Obviously, if all these these blessings are taken away and Job turns his back on the Lord, perhaps even curses him to his face, well then it should be clear. Job's only in it for the blessings that he receives. But if these blessings are all taken away and Job continues to fear the Lord and to praise the Lord, well then it's clear that God himself is Job's greatest delight. And then knowing him and having this relationship with God is even greater and stronger and more precious than suffering. If he continues to fear God, then God really is Job's greatest treasure and knowing him is his sweetest delight. And God knows that he is greater than suffering, that he is the greatest treasure to his saints. And so he allows Satan to make his point. But he sets a limit to Satan's power. He tells Satan that he can touch all of his blessings, but the person himself is not to be touched. So Job's wealth and family and these precious blessings from the Lord are allowed to be taken away, but Job himself is off limits. And that'll be enough of a challenge as it is. And here the the scene in, in heaven ends, and Satan is left to attack Job. And it's very clear from this passage that God is sovereign and that even when Satan in this life wants to make a point. 
But even then, he still has to acknowledge God, that God is in command on earth, on what happens on earth, even when Satan is trying to challenge God. And so it's very clear that God is sovereign. But more importantly, we can read Satan's words today and wonder the same question. Why is God feared and worshipped today? Is it for his gifts or for who he is? Does God buy the love of his people by the gifts that he gives them? No. I'm hoping that you, of course, right away realize that this is an outrageous idea, that God doesn't have to buy the worship or the love of anyone because he's God Almighty. He's worthy of all our praise and worship. He doesn't need to buy anyone's love. He deserves it because he's God. And yet if you look at perhaps any other, almost any other religion besides Christianity, or even if you look at certain sects within Christianity, just think of perhaps even the health and wealth gospel or something like it, you see this exact principle promoted. They work on the same basis as does Satan. It's the idea that if you serve God, you, you're guaranteed going to have a good life. Because if you serve God and invest in your time and with your money, you're certainly to get that job, or you're certainly going to be able to pay those bills at the end of the month. And this, is, this seems like a good way of doing worship, right? Because it means you do your worship, you're certainly to get something out of it. And it's the worship that pervades large parts of the world today. And we have to acknowledge that this is a real sinful kind of bartering with God kind of worship. And yet, if it's, if it's a sinful, almost, if it arises from our sinful nature and if it pervades much of society today, we perhaps have to wonder, do we have these same tendencies? Now, it's very clear from Scripture and especially from Revelation that Satan cannot accuse God or accuse saints before God any longer. But could we imagine, just this morning, that Satan is before the throne of God and that he points out the church today, and he says, look, God, look at all the blessings that you've given them. And that he would then challenge the Lord to take them away so that the Lord may see the real sinful tendencies of our hearts. Would Satan have any ground to stand on if he were to accuse us, perhaps, of worshiping God for his blessings and for our own benefit? Could he accuse you of worshiping God for his blessings? And we can think of the blessings, perhaps, that we think it's, it's wealth or something more material. Perhaps it's just worshiping because, well, worshiping the Lord seems to be the, a re, the perfect recipe for a, success, a successful life. Sorry. The idea that, well, if you, I see my parents and my grandparents worship the Lord and they did were well off, so... That seems to be the way to go. Or perhaps we worship because, well, during the week we sin, our conscience accuses us, and then we go to church on Sunday, feel relieved, and then go on sinning again. That we just want to ease our conscience. Or perhaps we worship just because we want to have that status of being a religious person. Could Satan bring up anything like that?
And we can perhaps even make this question just sharper and also close to what happened to Job. And I think we can test ourselves. Is there anything that the Lord could take away tomorrow or any time afterward that he would take that away and that would certainly make you turn your back on the Lord? Now that's, that is a real, real tough hypothetical question to answer. But just think about it for a moment. Is there something that's just so precious in your life that if you say, well, if God takes that away, I'm not sure if I could worship him any longer. Now, perhaps you are now confronted, too, with the fact that there are so many things in this life that we do hold precious or hold dear. And we do perhaps wonder how we would ever be able to serve the Lord if he took that away. And it hurts because we want to serve the Lord and we want to worship him at all circumstances, but sometimes it will be very tough. And you might be thinking right now, well, we just read, Ro, or read Job and look, all these things were taken away from him. I would never, if I were Job, I would never be able to end this chapter like he did by blessing the Lord. And yet before you draw that conclusion that you, that you think that you could never be as Job, we have to first look outside of our own sinful reaction and our own weak faith and look instead to the work that the Lord accomplishes in his saints like Job and like us. Because the reason any believer can persevere and that any believer can worship God even when he takes away what is dear to them, well, the only reason is that the Lord works in them and holds on to them through his Holy Spirit. And this brings us to our second point, that Job's reason for fearing God is not taken away. And so our passage continues in verse 13. Satan goes out and he systematically takes away all of Job's blessings. And the hedge that the Lord had put around Job and his blessings is just torn down. And first, the oxen and donkeys are taken away by raiders. The animals are stolen and the servants killed. And only one survives to be able to come to Job. And then, as if this is not enough, a second servant comes again with bad tidings. And this time it was fire from heaven which consumed all of the sheep and the servants. And you can just wonder, well, this, this is not just bad news, this is a bad sign. How could it be that 7,000 head of sheep and all the servants were consumed by fire and died along all at once? And it doesn't even stop here. Another servant comes up. And this time, the servant had been with the camels, and more raiders appear. And again, everything is taken away from Job. And nothing is left for him. And then lastly, the fourth servant runs up. And by now, almost everything has been taken away from Job. Well, almost everything, of course. He still has his children. And this time, it was a strong wind which came across the wilderness and hit the house in such a way that all four walls collapsed so that all the children passed away, died in the house. And so there's nothing left of all these blessings that the Lord had given Job. That whole list that we find in the first couple of verses has been taken away. And can anyone imagine what it would have been like to be 
Job. Just blow after blow delivered pretty much at the same time. Within a few moments, just going from this wealthy, blessed father of ten to this poor father who has to bury his children. And in four, just devastating strikes. Everything is taken away. And we can just wonder, what, what is left but tears and disbelief? How could this happen? How could it be that raiders, fire from heaven, and a mighty wind could all come together at one time to take away all of his possessions? And sometimes we might think that we have days where everything seems to be against us. Well, Job is perhaps the one person in history who could legitimately say that all things seem to be against him. Everything went wrong and everything got as bad as it could get. There's nothing left for Job. And here is a man who has then lost everything. And it is painful. And he mourns. And he tears his clothes, shaves his head, and he falls to the ground. And this is the moment of truth. Who is right? Did Satan know what he was talking about when he said that Job only worshipped God for his blessings? Was Satan right to say that, well, look, take away his blessings and he'll certainly curse you to your face? Is it true that Job will now become angry, turn to God and shake his fist and curse God to his face? Or was God right? Will Job continue to be upright, fearing the Lord, and praise Him, even in this hour? Was God right to commend Job before Satan and before the, son, before the angels? Who is right? And Satan and God both wait for the words from Job's mouth. What is he going to do? Will he curse God? No. Job's response is probably the most striking part of this whole chapter. He has been just stripped of all that is dear to him, yet he has his life. And what does he do? He worships. He bows down to worship the God of heaven and earth. All that has happened to him from birth until now, he acknowledges to be the work of the Lord. And so also, that day of calamity was the work of the Lord. And he simply confesses, confesses this with the words, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is not a curse. This is a praise to God. And it's a confession of God's sovereign power. A confession made with tears, but a confession nonetheless. Instead of cursing God to his face, Job praises the Lord. And we can't imagine a greater contrast. How could, how could Job praise the Lord in such a situation? And if we look at the words of Job, we find that he focuses on two things. First of all, he focuses on who he is, and second on who the Lord is. And he begins with considering who he is, that he is a man, that he's sinful, immortal. He came into this world possessing nothing, and he knows that he will eventually also leave this world possessing nothing. That it doesn't matter how much wealth he had been given, it doesn't matter how much he had worked or how much he had saved up, all of this will be left behind in the end. You'll be left with your person and that is it. Is there then anything in this life that we can claim that that's really ours, that is what we deserve? 
Is there anything that we can say, we have right to that? Well, Job says no. Everything, right from the very beginning of our lives, has been a gift from God. He has given, and He can also take away. Everything is given to us and out of our hands. That's Job's confession. Yes, everything has been given to us. It is not our own. And it has all been given to us by that sovereign God upon whom, God, or upon whom Job focuses. He is in control of our lives. He gives us life and breath. Who gives us houses, riches, parents, and much, much more. And all of these things we receive from our very first, first breaths, from our very first heartbeats. And then who is Job to, to turn to this good and gracious God who has given this all throughout his life? How is he to turn to this God and curse him to his face? How is he to turn to God and tell him that he can't take away that which, that which was not Job's to begin with? No. God deserves to be praised for who he is and what he has done in his almighty wisdom. He's God and we're human. He's the overflowing fountain of all good. And we are sinners born naked and weak who will pass away in weakness and owning nothing. And this is, this is Job's comfort in his confession. He knows the Lord as his sovereign God, and more he does not need to know. It's as Asaph sings in Psalm 73, and we'll sing this afterwards, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And Job just simply admits, it's not about receiving God's blessing, but about knowing Him. The Lord is His portion, for He is the Lord Almighty, the one who gives and the one who takes away. What can we do but worship for who He is and what He has done? And these are such striking words of faith. The Lord was right. Job loves God for who He is even when he takes away all of the blessings that he had given to Job. That Job's love is not bought by God's blessings or his good gifts, but, God, but Job has come to understand that God is worthy of praise in all circumstances. His love re is real and revolves around who God is, and nothing can change that. I mean, if, if even these events cannot change that, what could? And that that sincerity and steadfastness of, of Job's worship is striking. It has such deep root, roots that it cannot even be shaken by what happens in this first chapter. And you might wonder, would I be ever able to answer like Job, to answer in such a way of, of faith and of steadfast faith? Or is Job just truly one of a kind? And yes, it's true. Job's confession and also the, the recommendation that he receives from the Lord, and his confession, they show us that he had great faith. The Lord commends him for his faith. And yet at the same time, the way in which uh, God commends Job is not unique. I mean, God calls Job blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And all of these attributes or, or adjectives, all of these, these descriptions of Job's life are also found in the New Testament. 
And they describe New Testament believers. Now the problem is, of course, that when we look at our lives, we know that we're not blameless and that we do not fear God or love Him as we should. Not so often that when we try to love God or that when we love God, we we fall short because we love so many other things. Or that when we try to live blamelessly to keep God's law, we struggle and we fall. We stumble to keep these commandments. Now it's clear that of ourselves, we are far from being blameless or holy or even fearing God and turning away from evil. And we have to recognize that nothing is less true for Job. That Job is a sinner saved by grace just as much as any one of us. He's a sinner who was made holy, who was made blameless, and who was made to walk in the ways of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. So before we go on to say that Job was completely unique, that he was just one of a kind, that he's this standard that we would never attain to, let us not forget that it is the Lord who works such faith in his saints. It is the Lord who loved us and works in us by his Holy Spirit so that we might rightly know God and love him. And we see this, this work of the Lord in the life of Job because otherwise he wouldn't indeed not be able to worship God as he does. Because otherwise he would not be upright or blameless or fearing God. And we may know that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, also has given this whole earth, provides this Holy Spirit for his church to make them holy and blameless, to transform them so that they begin to love the Lord more and more. As Colossians 1, verse 21, verses 21 and 22 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And he's talking about what they were and the transformation that happens. But now, he, and that's Jesus Christ, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. So Christ promises to work in the church so that he might present all believers, all of the church, holy and blameless before the throne of his Father. And this is not our own doing. This is the work of the Lord. And so perhaps we might think that indeed Job's faith is impossible. To have a faith like Job is is impossible. And perhaps you wonder if you could ever truly fear God with an undivided heart. Because right now you you see your heart and you acknowledge that there, there, yes, you want to fear the Lord and love Him, but there's so many things that pull in the other way direction. And that even when we worship the Lord today, perhaps we recognize we have mixed motives. And yes, if we continue to focus on our weak faith and our sinful tendencies, we would be correct to say that we would never be as Job was. But in this scripture passage, God calls us to look at the work that he accomplishes in his saints. He just points us to Job and says, look, this is how I work in believers, and this is how I make sure that they continue in faith. So believe in Jesus Christ, who poured out the Holy Spirit into our hearts and who also continues to work in his church to present them holy and blameless before the throne of his Father. And also be encouraged that this Lord, our Lord, will not abandon us in such times as need as we find in Job or as we perhaps find in our own lives. That the Spirit who works in us faith, 
will not abandon us when we need him most. And that he will continue to work in us so that we may rightly know God and fear him and love him with, eventually with all our heart, soul, and mind. And exactly for who God is and not for his blessing. So, is God enough? Or does God need to buy our love with his gifts? And the reaction of Job leaves no doubt. God is God and to be praised for who he is, regardless of our circumstances. That God is all-powerful, sovereign, and everything happens according to his will, and that his will is good. And that to know him and to praise him, to love him as our God is a comfort, even when he takes away the blessings he initially gave us. And that even though fearing and worshiping God in such circumstances might seem impossible, we know that the Holy Spirit, ever sanctifying us, works in us this faith and will continue to work in us. He continues to work in believers so that from one day to the other, from now till we will be finally glorified, we may more and more be holy and blameless and that we may more and more know God and love Him for who He is. That He is God, working us to eventually present us holy and blameless before His throne. And this is our comfort and hope in all circumstances. Amen.